And so we end up, instead of doing great things, living in our comfort zones and never really stepping out and risking. And I thought, man, that was good, you know, because I started thinking, I don't know of anything that's really come out of comfort zones that was of great consequence to the world, you know? Steve Jobs didn't invent Apple. Netflix binging on his couch eating bonbons, you know? There's, there's like, a lot of stuff that... It, um, when, when you want to step out, when you want to do something amazing with your life, oftentimes you have to step out of what makes you comfortable. And this girl shared her story of all the things she'd done to be uncomfortable, challenging herself. She stayed as a homeless person in East Village for a night. She uh, picked up belly dancing. She learned to fly a helicopter. She's just challenging herself to stretch out and press out on the limits of who she is. And while she was talking... I was thinking back to the fact that over the last couple of weeks as we've prepped for this uh, sermon and this topic today, I've been asking some of you guys and different people around the city, are you on mission with your life? Do you have a purpose? And if you do, do you find yourself really living it out? And oftentimes, the answer that I've been getting back from many people is, I feel like I have a sense of purpose for those in our church, but I'm not really living it out. There were several others who said, I don't really feel like I even have a sense of purpose. So how do we discover that sense of purpose? How do we step out and start to, start to live in that? And the thing that kept coming back is the reason why people weren't doing that is this, fear. The reason why I'm not stepping out and fulfilling God's purpose in my life, God's mission in my life, it came down, it could boil down to one term, fear. Fear of being one of those kinds of Christians. Fear of risking relationships and rejection. Hey, I'm an introvert, man. Like, I don't think God really shaped me to be evangelistic. You know, I just, I just kind of hang back. It's all kinds of fears. In today's passage, I'm really excited about the fact that it challenges some of our misconceptions, first of all, about God's mission. But it also challenges us to reach for more, to pop our comfort bubble if you will, and challenges us to re-examine the content of our faith and ask, why live in fear? Why live in fear? Because of fear, we so often miss out on God's purpose for us. But today, if you'll allow this passage to inspire your faith and really speak to your heart and challenge your, your fears and your objections, I believe you'll find yourself really living a life on purpose that feels more fulfilling and more fruitful than ever before. Uh, are you guys with me? All right, cool. So four points, four things that God gives every one of his disciples that we see in this passage. And those things are a mission, a message, a motivation, and a method. All right? So let's dive right in. We got a long way to go in a very short while to get there, so I'm going to push fast to try to stick with me the best of your ability. Number one, God gives us a mission. Now, I wanted to read the chapter before this too, but there's just not enough time. But in chapter nine, Jesus uh, sends out his 12. So he sends out the 12 apostles and he sends them out to do three things, to preach, to heal, and to cast out evil spirits. And I mean, which are of course three things that we see Jesus doing all throughout his ministry. And um, like when you think about that, like preaching is proclaiming the good news of the gospel and persuading people of truth. And when you think of Jesus, he cast out demons. He, he helped free people, liberate people from the bondage and the dark spiritual darkness and depravity and despair that people are in. 
And when he healed people, he mended bodies and communities and the overall fabric of the world. And now Jesus sends his 12 out and says, go, declare the gospel that the kingdom is near. Demonstrate the gospel in your communities by bringing healing to where there's brokenness. And the thing is, like, if, when we read that, that in chapter 9, Jesus gives the 12 power and authority to do that. One of the objections that can come up is, is what if it's just for them? Like, what if this is just for the special people among us, the people who are gifted this way? I don't really feel like it's for me. The whole idea, like, did you read that? He gave him power to tread on serpents and scorpions and tells him, don't take any money, and I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's scary, right? Like, I don't feel, I don't feel called to that, maybe, you know? Um, but if we just had chapter 9 and not chapter 10, we'd say, cool, that's, that's like the clergy. That's the professional Christians. Atta boy, go get them, tiger. Go get them, pastor. Yeah, we'll pay you guys to do the ministry, right? But in chapter 10, he doesn't just send out the 12. He sends out 72. And I know that's a weird number. You probably wonder what that means. If you were a Christian in the first century, it would stand out to you what that means immediately because if you um, had a copy of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 10, there was a table of nations and there were 72 nations. So this is Jesus' way of saying, this is for everybody. This isn't just for the special forces and the elite Christians among us and the clergy. This is for everyone. Everyone is called to the mission of God. And he also says in verses one, verse two, verse three in the passage we just read, I'm sending you. And that word sending is the Latin word missio, which is where we get our term, of course, missionaries, mission, right? So we are sent ones, we're missionaries, we don't just have a mission. The truth is we actually are called to embody the mission, to live it out as a, a form of our identity. And Paul picks up on this in a passage I'm going to read really quick from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And I want you to notice both the gospel presentation in this passage and also the identity language. Paul doesn't say this is a task you do first. First, he says this is who you are. This is something that's been done to you, transformed who you are at your core, and now you're being sent out. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's good news. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us. Everybody say, that's me. That's me. Everybody say, that's me. All right, cool, you're with me. Trusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we're new creations, we're ministers of reconciliation. Then he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And you say, what is this message of reconciliation? What is this gospel? He lines it out right here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. So you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you're a missionary. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're an ambassador 
This isn't just for the special elite. This is for all of you if you're in Christ. And we could go on and on into that, but we have some other points to get to. I just, I just want to make this point. You don't have a mission. I'm sorry, you have a mission and your life has incredible purpose, meaning, and value. Don't, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that your life doesn't have a mission or a purpose or value. Jesus says in this passage, I've brought you in. I've reconciled you to God. I've healed you. I've blessed you. And now I'm sending you back out. Why? To bring others in, to heal their hearts, to bless them so that they can do the same thing. And that creates this community all throughout the world that renews the fabric of this broken world that's been torn by sin. I want to reconcile the world through you. And you ask, how does he do that? It's almost... It's almost like you can hear God saying, look, remember before I met you? Do you remember when you were having to be your own savior? When you were having to manufacture your own sense of significance? When you were always fighting against that inner sense of inadequacy? It was understandable back then that you could be a little self-absorbed, right? Absorbed in your own life, your own problems, your own issues, your own survival, but not now. I've met you. I've dealt with your shame. I've loved you. I've provided satisfaction for the deepest longings of your heart. So now you don't need excuses. You don't need to be absorbed in your own little issues anymore. Get out there. I'm sending you out. Go live for others. And you ask, okay, well, that's great theory, but what does that look like for me? Right? Because it sounds kind of like just a general statement. One of my favorite passages, and I'll kind of close this point up with this, is Ephesians chapter 2. That also highlights the gospel, uh, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's a gift, a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. That's the Greek word there, poeme, which is, of course, etymologically where we get our word poem today. So you are God's workmanship. You're a masterpiece. He's crafting. He's spending time on you. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you weren't saved by your good works, but you were saved for good works. That's what Paul says. And it's not just that you were sent out in the world in general on mission. I think one of the ways that we fall short in talking about mission often is that we talk about it in a very general sense. But I want you to consider the fact that there are particular things that God has for you. As Liam Neeson says, I have a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a lifetime, right? You have particular people in your life that God has called you to. You have particular things God has called you to do. You were shaped to be the instrument for healing. I just want you to pause and, and ask yourself if you really believe that's true. In other words, your experiences, whether they're good experiences in your life, your joys, maybe even your sorrows, your race, your age, your your personality, your gender, your gift set, all the things God's purposely combined in you and shaped you because there are some hands out there that only you can hold. 
There are some needs out there that only you can meet. And there are some demons out there that only you can drive out. There are certain people that God has prepared for you to be the healing agent of his grace in their lives. And this is so utterly different than the reigning worldview, right? That basically biological life is just an accident. There's no real rhyme or reason for it. You're not here for any purpose. You know what Heidegger called Gevorfenheit, which is just, I'm sure we're all familiar with that, which is just, it means thrownness. You're just kind of thrown purposeless into the world, right? But Jesus doesn't talk about thrownness. He talks about sentness. That at the core of your identity in Christ is a mission, a purpose, a sentness. So everyone has a mission and God wants you for nothing less than this grand mission to bring about the reconciliation of all things, to heal creation, to, to rescue broken lives. And how? Well, it begins with a message and that's point number two. Verse nine, he says, the kingdom of God has come near you. In verse 11, he says, when people don't want to hear it, Remind them, hey, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Every disciple of Jesus has a message that they're called to declare and to demonstrate. Jesus sends us out to communicate by any means necessary the gospel, the good news. You say, well, what's a gospel? We talk about the gospel a lot here, but let's define it. When Jesus began using that word, it was already a pre-existing word that had a pre-existing meaning. It was very specific. Right? We have a, uh, a document, for instance, that talks about the gospel of Caesar Augustus. This is the gospel of Caesar Augustus going out. So what is a gospel? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, a gospel is news of an objective history-changing event that affects everyone. And you say, wait, there's a gospel of Augustus Caesar? What is that? You know? But what, what the gospel meant was the declaration that he had ascended to the throne. And the message is sent out all over the place by heralds as they run from city to city and share the news and declare the news that Caesar has risen to the throne. It's, a, it's an announcement of the news of an amazing history-changing event that affects everyone. So you can't say, hey, it doesn't affect me. He's not my emperor. No, well, Sorry, he's the emperor, and you're going to have to deal with it one way or the other. There's a great example of this um, in the, I think it was 490 BC, uh, the Battle of Marathon, where uh, the Persians were coming in, and they were getting ready to destroy Greece, just level them to the ground. And the Athenian army goes out to fight them on the battlefield of Marathon, right? The plains of Marathon. And they go out, and there's no hope, and everybody knows they're going to get killed, and Athens is going to be open to attack, and the, and the Persians are just going to swing in there and destroy them all. So there's panic in the streets of Athens, and everybody's freaking out. And by some amazing miracle, the Athenians win the day, and they crush the Persian army, and then they say, oh my gosh, we got to get back as soon as we can to Athens. We've got to deliver the gospel. There's going to be panicking and rioting and looting. Send somebody back, and they send a runner back who runs 22 and a half miles, which is where we get our modern day distance marathon, right? And he runs and he gets into the city out of breath and he only has the strength to say these simple words. He says, rejoice, we've triumphed. And he falls dead from exhaustion from the marathon. So when Jesus says, go proclaim 
the gospel to everyone in creation. Do you realize the enormity of what he's saying? Like he said, he hints at it in verse is it 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I was there before the foundations of the earth. I'm the uncreated one. I am God, is what he says. Right? If Jesus was just a prophet, the gospel could be like really good advice on how to live, how to pray, how to find a life. And you may take it or you may not at the end of the day. But if what Jesus says is true, if he actually did see Satan fell, if he is who he says he is, then his birth, his ministry, his gospel, it's a history-changing event that affects everything. It changes everything. And you have to respond to it or else history will leave you behind. That's the whole point of Luke 10 and sending out the 72. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come near. If you reject him, history will leave you behind. This is the best news ever. Like, do you understand what it means that the kingdom of God has come near? It means the way the world was meant to be, the shalom of God, the peace, the way things were before the fall, before sin destroyed everything, before the selfishness of our heart has destroyed even our own lives and others around us, the way the world was meant to be, that's the kingdom of God coming near. And you're invited to take part in that, to enter life the way it was meant to be lived, to experience healing in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your body, in your soul, to, to be part of the meaning and purpose of the restoration of all things. Like, nothing will give your job more meaning and significance when you go back tomorrow morning than the gospel. Because you're working at your job toward the restoration of all things. You're taking part in the great mission of God. And if the gospel is true, the most loving thing you can do is share it. And the most unloving thing you can do is not share it. It would be like if you discovered the cure for cancer had some stroke of genius, genius, boom, and it hits you. And if we took these three fruits and mixed them together, right? And all of a sudden you had the cure for cancer, but you didn't want to share it. You just kind of kept it to your own family. And when they got sick, you would help them. That would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it? It would be terrible. If the gospel is really true, if it is the best news ever, one of the worst things we can do is keep it to ourselves and not share it. Anybody still with me? Okay. It's tense in here. This is almost as bad as when you preach about money. It's just like, oh. <laughs> All right, so Jesus gives us a mission. He fundamentally shifts who we are at a core. He calls us missionaries, changes our identity. Two, he gives us a message that the kingdom of God has come near. And three, Jesus says, your motivation is so important. Because if you have the wrong motivation for this, you'll destroy the message. And you can actually destroy lives. Look at what he says here. Point number three. I, I just want to ask you a question. Like, Think about this. How can we stop from becoming egomaniacs? How can we stop from being those angry people that we see sometimes with the picket signs and the bullhorns telling everybody they're going to hell? How can we stop? Be, uh, how can we keep from being people who don't, don't have empathy with people for, who are different from us? people of other religions, people of other worldviews? How do we stop fearing rejection and seeking approval? How can we overcome our fears around mission? Well, it's all around our motivation. And Jesus talks about this in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw uh, Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So he's saying, yeah, of course my gospel is going to give you power to do the work it's sent out to accomplish. But he says, verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Jesus says, I don't like your motivation, guys. I don't like the joy that's driving your mission. I don't like the way you're getting passion for your mission. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's Jesus doing here? Well, here's here's what he's saying. He says there's a kind of motivation for the mission that's actually bad. And there's a kind of motivation for the mission that's good. And to figure out the difference, it becomes the solution for our fears around mission. Okay, so first, he's saying, don't do some things. What's he saying don't do? Rejoice not that the spirits submit to you. Now, I know you say, like, what's wrong with that? Right? Why not get excited about what they saw as they went out, as they pray for people, as they see marriages come back together and lives healed and demons cast out and sicknesses be healed? Like, why not be excited about that? But if you, if you look carefully, that's, that's not what he's saying. Right? It's, it's absolutely fine to be excited about the work of God. But look at what they say. They, they're not excited about having liberated people, Right? Did they come back saying, wow, Lord, we've helped people. People are free. People are liberated. Homes are back together. Race relations are better. Like, everything's amazing. No, no. Here's what, here's what they said. Wow, Lord, we're really something, aren't we? Even the demons submit to us. If you really want to get a gist of what Jesus is warning you against, you've got to look at the second clause there, right? He says, rejoice not, but rejoice that your names are written. What's it mean to have your name written? I think it's kind of lost in its significance for a lot of us because when we have our names written down, it's mostly in the mailbox with envelopes, and there's a printing press, and it's kind of a commonplace thing to have your name written down. It might even be negative, depending on how many bills are in your mailbox, right? And so seeing your name written down isn't always a positive thing, but in ancient times, this was a huge thing before printing, right? If your name was written down, you were somebody, And the metaphor Jesus is using is probably referring to the fact that in every town there was like a town roll, kind of like a census. And there's only citizens had their name written there, which the citizens were a really small minority of the people that actually lived there, right? Citizens were people of name, you know? To have a name in ancient times meant to be like a nobleman or or somebody, everyone else that lived in the town, there were servants and retainers and artisans, but to have a name meant you were somebody. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I don't want you to get your sense of self, to feel like you're really somebody because of what you've done. But because of this, what? He says, "Pause, pause and look at what you're resting in. Get a sense of what it is that you're looking to, to get a sense that you're somebody. Is it your power? Is it your gifts? Is it your accomplishments? Is it your performance? Because if it is, that'll lead to the same thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven, that pride. We swell with pride when things go well. Listen, when you go out on mission to people to declare and demonstrate the message of the gospel, and while you're going out, your heart motivation sounds like this, I know I'm somebody because I'm having an impact. I know I'm somebody because people are listening to me. I know I'm some, somebody because people are experiencing change. 
Jesus is getting at this. In the end, that's not going to help. In fact, eventually it'll destroy you. It'll destroy the mission. Why is that? Well, it's because people who find their sense of significance and their power and their pleasure and their performance, people who say, I'm somebody because I'm really on mission. I'm somebody because I'm really helping people and bringing change. I'm somebody because people are listening to me, etc. First, when people do listen to you, you're going to become a coercive, manipulative person to those who believe, on, believe in you and what you're saying. Why? Because they're like your trophies. They're the people that, they're, they're how you know you're somebody. And how are you going to treat people who don't listen to you, who reject you? You'll be resentful, right? You'll be resentful because when people reject you, they threaten your very sense of self, your core identity, your value. That's why when your self-image is based on your performance and people don't listen to you, you say things like the disciples did in the last chapter. Back in chapter 9, when the disciples told him, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven on these unbelievers? Think about that. What led them to say that? That is what the world sees happening with so many religious people. They're scared of it, and they should be scared of it. They feel repulsed by it, and they should feel repulsed by it. Even Jesus sees it happening in this group of 72, and he says, guys, stop. Rejoice not that you have all this power. Rejoice not in your gifts. Rejoice not in your performance. I've got a better way. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What does that mean? Well, ancient people believed that at the end of the world, at judgment day, the books would be open. And there in the books would be all the things you've ever said, all the things you've ever done, and all the good and all the bad would be there. And, and if the good outweighed the bad, your name would be written in the book of life. And Jesus says, let me tell you what the gospel is. Your name is already written in the book of life. And you say, how can that be? Past tense? Name is written? My life's not even over yet. We haven't found out how that person's gonna live. How could their name be written in the book of life. And Jesus says, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is don't rejoice in what you do. Rejoice in what's been done for you. Don't rejoice in what you do. Rejoice in who you are in me. You've already been accepted. You're already in. You're already somebody because of the gospel. You know, you go to like one of the classiest restaurants in San Diego. What's, name one. What's, what's a super classy restaurant here? Huh? Maroon. You go to the Marine Room or Chick-fil-A. <laughs> you go to the Marine Room and the maitre d' welcomes you and he says, welcome. And you say, yeah, it's my name. I have a reservation. Is my name down? And he says, uh, Larson, yes, right this way. Follow me. You know? See, in Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus Christ says the door at which you've been knocking all your life is open to you. All the beauty you've been seeking, this is the beauty you're after. All the loves you've been chasing, this is the love you've been seeking your whole life. The door is open to you. Right this way. Welcome into the heart of things. Welcome into the life of God. It doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter your performance. It doesn't even matter whether people listen to you. I know this is tough, right? L listen, if you're rejoicing in being a great mother or a great father, I have news for you that one day your kids will fail you or one day you will fail them. And then what will you do? 
If you're rejoicing in your portfolio, how much money you got in the bank, it'll fail you one day. You know, at the end of your day, you know, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it, right? You can't take it with you. (laughs) One day, your riches will leave you, right? If you're finding your sense of self and maybe you're a social worker or you do ministry or a mission, what will you do when people don't listen to you? You'll manipulate them. And what will you do when they reject you? You'll despise them because your identity is being crushed. But Jesus says, don't rejoice in what you've done because your self-image will be all over the place. Rejoice in who you are in me. In the gospel, you are absolutely accepted. You are loved. You are secure. Your name has been written. It's already there. You say, how could that be? Back in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 32, Moses You guys remember the story with the children of Israel while Moses is on Mount Sinai, they build a golden calf and they fall down and worship it. And God is frustrated and says, I'm going to blot their names out of the book. And Moses says to God in Exodus 32, he says, please forgive their sin, O Lord, but if not, blot me out of the book. What does God say? He says, no, I'm going to blot those who sinned out of my book, but now go on ahead and lead them and my angel will go before you. And that makes no sense. If you think about the logic behind that, Moses says, you're a just God. I get it. I realize they deserve to be blotted out of your book, but I love them. I want them to be safe. So blot me out instead. Let me take the punishment. But God says, that's true. I I don't overlook sin. I must blot their names out of my book, but go ahead and lead them and I'll continue to guide them. Why would God continue to lead them and guide them when he's blotting their name out of the book? I don't get, there's a tension there. Do you see that? What's going on there? Well, the answer is this, because the ultimate Moses comes later. The ultimate Moses that the life of Moses is pointing to, and his name is blotted out of the book. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22 and says, I'm a worm and no man. Because Jesus' name was blotted out of the book, my name can be written in. Do you see that? That's the gospel. Jesus says the secret to motivation for mission. And you know what, guys? Honestly, if you want, this is the secret to motivation for anything in your life that will never make you coercive or cruel, that will never make you depressed, that will never lead you to manipulate or exploit people. Why? Because you don't have to impress people. Why would you need to? Your identity is secure. It never goes up and down because of your performance. If you want a motivation that's always there, A motivation that's like gentle and yet courageous, right? So you can go out on mission and you can be courageous because you speak the gospel regardless of what people think because you don't care what they think. Your name is written. Your identity is secure. You see that? But you can be gentle, right? Because even to those who reject you, God bless you, even to those who reject you, you can be gentle. Why? Because you don't don't have to get angry because your name is already in the book. See that? So the gospel frees us from all the negativity around this and to the degree that you're melted by the blazing heat of the joy of knowing your name is written in heaven. You can overcome discouragement. You can overcome temptation. You can overcome your need to find your identity and your performance. So Jesus gives us a mission, a message, a motivation. But what does that look like on the ground? How do I live this out later on today? What does this look like on Monday morning when I go back to work? And this is the last part How can we be on mission in a way that really frees us from some of the fears and objections? 
And the answer is, is this, following the Holy Spirit to find the person of peace. God doesn't send you out aimlessly and say, just go witness to everybody. Take that person who's an atheist and just live your life trying to convince them to be a Christian. Jesus doesn't say to do the hardest thing in the world. Jesus gives us very specific instructions and steps. Uh, This is often called in theological and missional circles, the person of peace strategy. So I'm going to tap on it real quick to give you guys some practical steps and we're going to come up, take some time uh, praying and thinking about it. Uh, What is a person of peace though? You might ask that. You saw it in the scripture today. What is a person of peace? Mike Breen said it this way. A person of peace is someone who God has prepared to hear the gospel of the kingdom. And there's a couple of things that I, I want to throw out to you really quick as practical steps. Number one, the key here is following the spirit. I think I have a slide of following the spirit. Like it's like an octagon. It's pretty awesome. Um, and it's like a keyhole in the middle. And here's the, here's the key, guys. The burden of mission is God's. The blessing of mission is ours. It's not on your shoulders to save anybody. I could take all of my ingenuity and prowess and charm and do everything I can to try to win somebody for Jesus. And guess what? At the end of the day, I can't save anybody, right? Scripture says no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. It's the work of God to save people. Yet, he doesn't do that absent of us. He calls us into that work to partner with him. So Luke, when we think about this, Luke is like basically the Holy Spirit gospel. The author of Luke, Luke, also wrote Acts, which is basically the testament of the Holy Spirit's work in the early church. But Luke is really the testament of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Jesus. And it starts out with Jesus being baptized and the Spirit descending upon him and the Spirit leading him out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil and then coming back in the power of the Spirit and doing miracles by the power of the Spirit. So all throughout Luke, you see the Spirit at work leading Jesus' ministry, which is actually meant to model something for us. And that's our dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives, including his mission. And... Um, this octagon basically is just saying, here's some of the things you see that the Spirit does for you in Luke chapter 10, whether it's overtly said or whether it's hinted at. Some of the things that the Spirit does, his job in Luke 10 as you go out in twos and as you go on mission, the Spirit prepares the person of peace, according to verse 6. And I wish I had time to really walk through the whole chapter, but we're out of time, so I'm going to push through this. Um, The Spirit provides for us. And protects us. Remember Jesus says, I send you out a sheep among wolves. Who's going to protect you? He says, don't go out. Don't take any money for your journey. Who's going to provide for you? The Holy Spirit's at work providing for you. The Holy Spirit helps you perceive who is a person of peace. Whether they receive the peace or whether they push it back on you, right? And the Holy Spirit gives you power. I can't heal anybody on my own. I don't have the boldness to stand up and preach the gospel to anybody, but the Holy Spirit will give us power. So when you're talking to that coworker and you realize they're a person of peace, there's somebody who God's at work in their life and they share a need, who's going to give you the boldness to pray for that need? Who's going to give you the power to pray for healing or financial, financial situations in their life? Are we tracking? So the Holy Spirit gives us power. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit. At the end of the day, we can't make anything grow. You can water it, you can plant it, you can try to do your part, but the Bible says one plants, one waters, but who gives increase? Anybody? God, yeah, the Lord gives increase. So it's the Holy Spirit that even makes the fruit grow, and he gives us peace, right? 
Remember, all this, the mission of going out and finding people of peace and loving people is empowered, directed, provided for, and protected by the Holy Spirit. So besides the good news that our hearts can be free from fear that holds us back from God's mission in our life, in addition to that, we can have courage into mission because we're partnering with the Holy Spirit. We're following Him. We're trusting Him. Are, are we tracking? Okay, cool. One more quick uh, thing. You say, well, how, how do we know a person of peace? I've got a picture of a door because pictures are easier to remember, right? So here's the door. The, the Bible says in this uh, three verses in this chapter, it says in verse five, six, and seven, here's how you can know if somebody's a person of peace for you. Number one, they welcome you. They welcome you into their home. A person in peace is somebody that likes you. They want, no brainer, right? They want to be around you. Um, what else? It says that they receive your peace in verse six. I know that sounds kind of weird. Like, what is this whole thing about? I give them my peace, and then if they don't want it, it returns to me. All that saying is the common greeting of the day. Anybody know in the in the Near East what the common greeting was? Yeah, shalom, peace be unto you. And that's, we don't even have really an English equivalent for that, but that's like the kingdom of God, the peace of God. So this is a, a declaration of the kingdom being near. And if somebody receives that, if somebody's open to the message of the gospel and open to God, they might be a person of peace. But if they reject that, what's he say? Cool, go out, shake the dust off your feet and move on. It's really simple. But if they are open to the message of the gospel, don't move on, stay there. Be with them. And the third thing you see, they welcome you, they receive you, and in verse seven it says they serve you. These are people who believe in you. They love the mission that's going on in your life and they want to help you accomplish it. They serve you, they find ways to help you, they find ways to bless you. So think about that. In your life, who are some people that like me? Who are some people that seem to be open to God, kind of seeking? And who are some people that like me enough that they, they're blessing me and they're pouring into my life and they like to spend time with me. Who are those people? They're probably a person of peace. And what's the Bible say to do when you find those people? Invest in them. It says don't go to the next house. The goal here isn't to try to get a bunch of converts and get a bunch of numbers on a statistics board and say, look, it, we're winning the world. The goal here is to invest in people. Jesus didn't come to call us to make converts. He called us to make disciples. The only way you can do that is to stay and live life with people. You don't just go and declare the gospel. You have to live with people and demonstrate the gospel. So whose life are you investing in? And, and here's the cool thing that happens, and this is how we see the early church grow by leaps and bounds, is that when people do that, they recognize the person of peace. They recognize where the Holy Spirit's already at work, and they put their hands to it. And they trust that it's God's burden, and it's just their blessing to participate in. When they do that, those people open up their life and they open up this old Greek word oikos, which means household. And I think when we think household, we think American like, you know, husband, wife, 2.5 kids kind of thing. But household was way bigger than that. It was their entire group of friends and family. And they're saying, man, you got to see what God is at work doing. I want you to meet this guy. And we see that in scripture, don't we? All throughout scripture, we see that with the woman, woman at the well, and John, you guys remember that? She, she welcomes Jesus. She gives him water. She serves him. She's hungry for the gospel. And then she runs off and tells the town, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the whole town comes out. And tons of people are healed and delivered. That's a person of peace. 
Or even the demoniac in the Gennazarenes. You remember that crazy guy who's torn up with all these devils and he comes and seeks Jesus out and he receives that peace and he receives the healing and he wants to serve Jesus and go with him. And Jesus says, no, go back to your town. And that was in Mark 5. And the town had basically not been into what Jesus had to say at that point. He goes back in Mark chapter seven and the town receives him and they're open to the message of the gospel. And there's tons of healing and gospel fruit. You see it on and on throughout Acts. Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer. You see it all throughout Acts, the same strategy that the church is going out and saying, we're not gonna try to till the soil and try to make everybody a Christian. We're looking for where the Holy Spirit's already at work. And we're gonna go and invest in those people and love them and disciple them and let God bear fruit. Let the gospel bear fruit. Does that sound good? That, that makes things so much more simple, doesn't it? It's not this hard, this hard thing. Like One of the things I think we get into is this, this mindset that, oh man, there's so many Christians, but there's not really a lot of people who are ready to believe. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says the harvest is plenteous. It's the laborers that are few. Are you ready to receive that call? So let's close. I hope that as you've heard this today, um, and I know it was, it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose, um, but I hope you've allowed Christ's gospel and this, this strategy that he lays out to really inspire your faith and challenge some of those fears and objections, I think, that can get in the way of us being on mission. And then we're not on mission, and then we kind of feel guilty about it, but we just kind of ignore the guilt, and we wonder if we're ever going to do anything and get outside our bubble. And I believe God wants to pop some bubbles today. God wants to get us outside of our comfort zones. God wants you to identify and invest in your person of peace. And if you do, you will experience freedom from fear. You'll experience a purpose-filled life that is so fulfilling and fruitful. I want to challenge you guys. Don't let the fears, don't let the objections stand in your way today. Come down and prayerfully confess those over communion and receive the freedom through belief in the gospel as we remind each other about the truth of what God's done. And if you're uh, new here today and you're like, man, I love that whole bit about the gospel and what Jesus has done and my name being written and I'm ready to like take a step in that, I would love to pray with you. I'm gonna be down here praying um, and inviting anybody who'd like prayer for any reason. You can come down here and pray, but we're gonna take communion. For those of you who uh, are new to our church, we kind of wrap up a lot of our services with prayer and communion and then at the very end, We close out with a song and benediction. So if you're open to taking communion, you're a believer, we'd love for you to come on up, take communion, find a group of two or three people and just work through these three questions that we're gonna ask and dialogue about. And then in about 10, 15 minutes, we're gonna close out with a song and a benediction. Um, If you're not a believer yet, it's okay. Today could be your day. Or if you want to, you're welcome to join a group and listen in, or you can just hang back and wait for the music, do whatever you'd like. Um, I'm gonna pray over you. First, these three questions to help with the communion. First of all, just a confession. If you've had fears, if you've had objections to getting out there and being evangelistic and being on mission with God and fulfilling that purpose for the healing of the world, what fears and objections have held you back from God's purpose in your life? But we don't have to stop there. We can believe. How does who you are in the gospel free you from that? How does the good news of the gospel free you from the fear and the objection? And lastly, if you want to step out, who's at least one person of peace in your life that you can begin to step out in faith and begin to invest in? Sound good? Let me pray over us. Father, thank you so much that in your goodness, 
It, in your, uh, your graciousness, it's, it's scandalous grace because we did not do a thing to earn it. You sent your son as a missionary for our hearts. You sent him with a mission to, to woo us back to yourself, to be a minister of reconciliation. And so many of us here today have experienced the life that comes from that, the life that comes from being reconciled to God and walking with God. And we want more and more people to experience that, Lord, that life of freedom, that life of healing. We've, we've seen in the last month marriages healed in this church miraculously. We've seen people physically healed because of your work, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for this gospel you've given us. Thank you for those who are sitting here right now that might be feeling a call and a nudge in their heart, even for the first time, or some who have sat here for years and they're feeling a call and a nudge at their heart for the hundred and first time, million and first time, to come and, and give their life again to you, to trust you, to say thank you so much for your grace that's undeserved. I believe. I'm ready to follow you. And God, I pray you, as we come down today and pray and confess and, and, and take communion and remember that you came on great mission to us at grace, great cost to yourself, and you you purchased us back from the dead. You became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. I pray that we would partake in communion and experience healing in our own hearts and lives, that we would challenge unbelief wherever it shows up, and that we leave here today with a stronger sense of purpose and value for our relationships, for what we're doing at work, for, for reweaving this broken fabric in the world that's been torn by sin, all by the power of you at work in us. Thank you for your gospel that frees us from fear. Thank you for your spirit that leads us into mission. And I pray that you would have your way over the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.